Hi, everyone. This is Andy, host of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Now, you guys know that I never try and sell anything on the show. Uh, I don't even run any ads. Uh, really, the only thing that I could ask of you is if you could help us spread the word about the show and about the benefits of including alts in a portfolio, whether you're an investor or if you're an advisor helping clients. So if you have a minute, if you can log into Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave us a rating and review, it would really mean the world to me. Thanks so much. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I am your host, Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about commodity ETFs, agricultural ETFs, the whole backstory of how this space got revolutionized uh, decades ago now. Very excited to announce that joining me is Sal Goberti, who is founder and CEO of Tucrium. Sal, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Andy. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and we were talking a little bit before we started recording. Uh, you know, many years ago, uh, over a decade ago, I remember starting at ETF database that the company that I co-founded with Michael Johnston and Jimmy Atkinson, and we got to kind of, uh, you know, I don't, we weren't there at the very beginning of ETFs or anything, but that feels like it was the wild west, I guess, in this space, like 2008, 2009, 2010. Everything was so different then, right? It was different. And we we actually started in 2009. And so I guess we started kind of together in the business. It's interesting. I, I remember some of these fun launches. And um, I remember my impression even then was like, wow, these guys have some good tickers. These are like really memorable kind of catchy tickers. Um, so just to kick things off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, Sal? Sure. I uh, I come from a farming background, a farming family. I'm actually sitting on a farm uh, right now. That's where I keep my office. But that's an herb farm. And, and I focus on row crops. Um, right out of school, I went to Cargill. So I started my career at Cargill and actually in their in their energy division trading, believe it or not, leaded gasoline. I go way back. And I brought them from leaded to unleaded, traded um, energy there and, and you know cut my teeth in, in basically ags and energy. Um, fast forward all the way to 2008, I was sitting at, at a division of SockGen, and I had started the um, ethanol market, the ethanol over-the-counter market. I heard George Bush give a speech, George Bush Jr., uh, about ethanol, and I realized, wow, um, I started in leaded gasoline, and lead you know, makes you stupid, and we switched to MTBE, which gives you cancer, and I'm thinking, wow, they're going to put ethanol, which is nothing but vodka, it's grain alcohol, yeah. um, into gasoline, that, that's the future. And so I, I started a a desk inside of SockGen that's, that ended up trading about 30 different commodities um, with, with ethanol swaps as the lead, which was really fun and interesting. Um, and then I got into, into ETFs by happenstance. Um, someone called me from downstairs. I was in Rockefeller Center in my office in New York City um, and said, there's a guy in my office starting this thing called an ETF and there's going to be oil in it. Um, and I don't know what he's talking about, but I want his account. It was a broker. So I went downstairs and it was the guy starting um, an oil ETF. And I didn't know what an ETF was. I And through my entire career at, at Cargill uh, and Merrill Lynch at Bear Stearns, I was not allowed to trade futures in my personal account. I traded for the house, but I, I couldn't trade futures in my personal account because it was a conflict of interest. Now, yeah. here this guy was telling me he was going to package oil futures in something traded on the New York Stock Exchange. I thought that was the best idea I'd ever heard. Um I thought I could make a better product. I thought that the structure of just owning the front month and rolling it was was inadequate. Um, and I couldn't believe there were no agricultural ETFs at the time, so or single commodity agricultural ETFs. So I, I started Tucrium and I, I left my job there and started Tucrium. And we, we um, you speak about the tickers. I remember going down to the New York Stock Exchange and saying, I need some tickers. And they said, well, you know, I said, I wish you had more than the three three letters. And well, that, so those, when you say you went out of the New York Stock Exchange, 
Is this like there's a secretary sitting at a desk? It's like no, I, the- I made an appointment and <laughs> yeah, somehow, I forget who yeah. networked me, maybe whoever our, our distributor was. I need the ticker department. Give yeah, me yeah. the and, and I went down and I, I sat in there. It's very, you know, it's a nice place down there. Yeah. And um they I said, I wish that you had more than three letters for tickers. And he said, Well, we just actually merged the ticker system with NASDAQ. We have four. So wow, I'm starting a corn ETF. Do you have corn? And I remember he went down the hall. He came back. He said, yeah, I have corn. And while he was there, I was sitting waiting. And I'm making it up as I go. So well, we're going to have a soybean ETF. Do you have the SOYB? He went back. And we got all the tickers we wanted. And that's that's how we got um, really good tickers. We couldn't get sugar because of Sugarland, Texas. There were so many companies that were started based around Sugarland, Texas in the Houston area. The people had taken those tickers. So we have cane for our sugar funds. Yeah, cane. I mean, cane is a great, I mean, that's one of your your best tickers, I'd yeah. say. I, that's not a second-rate ticker. That's a great one. I, it, I'll it, admit it, that wasn't my primary choice, but we got it. I'm, try, I'm trying to think, you know, and by the way, so this episode, this is all part of our, our series on liquid alts and alternative ETFs. And I, Sal, I'm just really excited to talk with you because we're going to talk about the current day, you know, current market landscape with liquid alts, alternative ETFs. But this is also kind of a little trip down memory lane. And I'm trying to think back in those days, how many tickers were, I hope you don't take offense to this, but how many tickers were like cute, you know, were kind of like catchy. Seems like it weren't too many. Maybe there were like a few, ET- but now with ETF launches, it seems like everybody wants like kind of a cute, catchy ticker, right? Well, you know, we've learned the secret to the business and we weren't trying for cute. We were just trying for practical. Like I wanted yep. corn to mean corn and, and that's yep. that's what we got, sure. um, which I have to be careful speaking about the corn markets because now the SEC, since we sell a, a, a you know a, a listed product on the exchange, we're heavily regulated. And when I talk about the corn markets, they now assume I'm talking about my ETF as well. Mm-hmm. So I have to kind of be really balanced in my, if people ask me about market projections or things like that, which is interesting, but we found this. So if you just e- say corn, it's like no one knows technically, are you talking about corn, the crop or corn, your ETF? Correct. Is that, okay. The SEC understands that. Yeah. They, yep. Yeah. They, they, you know, they're, they're pretty smart over there. So um, <laughs> the interesting thing that we found is the secret to, you have to have a good product. Okay. But mm-hmm. you've got to be first to market and a good ticker really helps. So if you want success in the ETF industry, you know, get, get something good to put inside an ETF, be first in that mm-hmm. sector and get a good ticker. Those are the, that's the secret. And I might add, have a reasonable expense ratio because if there's too much, um, there's too much juice left to squeeze, there's always, you know, the likelihood somebody else is going to come in. But a lot of times the first to market, they gain all the AUM and then now they have that liquidity advantage, right? Because there's that's correct. More. That's so, correct. Yeah, but expense like- ratios, remember, you know, while ETFs are still the cheapest thing around, a lot of people will compare expense ratios to, say, mutual funds, or they mm-hmm. compare um, alternative ETFs like ours, which have higher expense ratios than, say, plain vanilla ETFs that are, you know, S&P 500 ETFs that are that are single digit BIPs because there's massive amounts of money in them and they're they're kind of not differentiated. Whereas when you've got a lot of work with a futures-based ETF, which is what ours are, with with uh, special um, structures that they're in that create the ETF wrapper or ETF-like wrapper, we call them an ETF. Technically, they're an ETP, an exchange-traded product, but for simplicity, we'll say ETF. Um, these things are difficult to manage. They're expensive to manage. And so, you know, nine BIFs doesn't cut it. Um, it's right. The expense ratio is a lot higher than that in some of these specialty products, but you get what you pay for. Um, and our our products are unique and provide people, we think, um, effective access for what they want. We can get into that wherever you want so, to go. So, yeah, let me get technical for a minute. And even back in my ETF database days, I was not the technical guy. So maybe this is a dumb question. I understand ETP, this is like the umbrella term that, that covers all these exchange traded products, including ETFs. Correct. And then uh, we had Daniil Shapiro on the show. I kind of asked him about ETNs. You know, and I understand those are a little less popular now, exchange traded notes. So those are a form of ETP. So is there another kind of ETP besides ETFs and ETFs? Yeah, there's there's what we have. So a 30, there, there are two kinds of funds, a 40-act fund, which is what most people are used to in, in, a, in a mutual fund or, or a plain vanilla ETF. And then there are 33-act funds. There are very specific rules about um, diversification and holdings and things like that that go okay. into a 40-act fund. So you've got to be in a 33-act, which is a limited partnership. Ours are structured as a, as a Delaware. Some are limited partnerships. We're in a Delaware series trust. 
So okay. some some ETPs, but either way, um, it's it's technically it's not an ETF. But when we're speaking, when the press speaks, they call just about everything an ETF. The main colloquially, colloquially, yeah, yeah, yeah. The main distinction is between an ETF or ETP, which generally you call an ETF, okay, or an ETN. An exchange traded note is a debt instrument. It's completely different. Um, ETFs are structured as, like I say, a trust, an LLP. They they are their own legal entity. So I can get hit by a bus tomorrow. Everybody at Tucrium can go down on a plane. We're not allowed on the same plane, but it can happen. And the investors yeah. in our funds are not affected by that because your money is in a separate trust. It's in its own entity. It lives there. If you buy a bank note, an exchange-traded note, and that bank blows up, you lose your money. You're, mm-hmm. You are now a creditor, an unsecured creditor to the bank. And right. ETNs, I, I would add, they charge you a fee. So you're actually paying the bank to take your money. Yeah. So, so an ETN, so, and I asked Daniel about this with ETNs, I asked him, you know, colloquially, do you fold those in with ETFs? And he said, well, Cerulli, definitely not there. We consider them to be very sim, uh, dissimilar wrapper. I mean, similar in some ways, but they're their own thing. That's but correct. With, with ETPs and like with the Tucrium type um, ETP, we're going to fold it in and we're going to call it an ETF. Colloquially, that's what the media does. And for all intents and purposes, from the investor, from the RIA, from the advisor point of view, they're behaving roughly the same. Once you get, I, and I got to say, once you go down that rabbit hole of the real technical details of ETFs and ETPs, it just makes me go, this is this is all like way too complicated for me. I'm, I'm going back to my 40,000 feet view. Look, all an investor needs to know is that there'll be different tax structures. So you might get a, a you know, a, a K-1 right. by a certain fund, like, like many of our funds. You might get a 1099. Um, some people don't mind K-1s. They're not intimidated and they understand that the tax treatment is better if you're in a certain category. And most of your right. listeners probably understand that very well. They don't care if they get a K-1. Right. Um, also, so that's ETF. like like an MLP, Master Limited Partnership, right. or just a lot of these other wrappers. They're just a little bit different than a normal that's, ETF. That's what it is. But they, in by and large, they give you exposure to a sector. They go up when the sector goes up. They go down when the sector goes down, or they do their own thing if they're an alpha product. And the investor gets hopefully what they want. It, just know your product before you buy. That's Understood. It. Okay. So, you know, Sal, you get, did a great job giving us the backstory of up to the two cream launch and, and how, you know, you got your start there. Um, but I'm wondering what were the first couple of years like, did, you know, when you launched your first ETFs, did they have any trouble attracting assets or because you were first to market, uh, were they, you know, like a success right from the start? Um, they were not a success from the start. It's a difficult business to be in. If you have futures-based products like ours, you're not listed on all the platforms. So all the e-brokers have you immediately. You you know you 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 get your ticker. You spend your year putting everything together. You spend your your money, um, and you and you you go down and ring the New York Stock Exchange bell and you do your interview on CNBC, yeah. and everybody's happy and. You know, people at Merrill Lynch and UBS and 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 other big warehouses call up and want try to buy you, and they can't because it's not on their platform yet. That's a multi-week, multi-month, multi-year, in some cases, process to get onto their platform. Whereas if you've got an E-Trade account or you're an RIA that clears through Schwab or, or another spot, you can just buy it and sell it instantly. So one of the things that, that happens is getting distribution and getting on the people's platforms is very difficult. The other thing is, unless you're a known name, which Tucrium was not um, at the time, nobody cares. They, they wanna see a track record. They, they want to check certain boxes that may or may not be relevant. And until you get in a headline, and our business has always been a headline business, it you, you know, you you do your work and you grow, you grind your assets. So you grind into slow, steady growth, and that's your success until a headline happens. And uh, I think it so, was our- so so reading between the lines, I guess. So I'm thinking you're on the the online brokerage platforms right away, but then some of these other you know, big companies, you're not going to be on that platform right away. You might not for, for a very long time. Is it a matter of business development and building relationships to get on their platforms? Or is it a matter of like this commodity just spiked 
and there's a lot of uh, investor demand for this ETF. So I, I, they're hearing it from like their clients. It's both. And in fact, many of the, the platforms will say, all right, you've got to have, I'm just making this up, but they're unique, but you've got to have 50 million AUM. You've got to have a year under your belt. You've got to have mm-hmm. at least 100,000 shares trading a day. None of that's relevant in an ETF. Okay. ETFs are liquid. They could trade nothing every day. But if your underlying is liquid, somebody can put a giant order in, they're going to get executed with a good fill. Because ETFs, the ETF mechanism, the create, redeem mechanism, the arbitrage mechanism, ETFs, it doesn't matter what the historical volume of the ETF is. What matters- So the liquidity is not just related to the bid-ask spread of the fund. It's 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 just as related to how liquid the underlying assets completely are. Completely dependent on the underlying. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So that that's the most important thing. So you know, people can look at an ETF. If it has low volume, that doesn't mean anything. What you need to do is look through the ETF. What does it hold? If that's a, a we're in the ag markets, okay? Corn, soybeans, wheat, they trade decabillions a day of notional value. <laughs> there, there's nobody that can put in an order. What's a de- what's a decabillion? That's 10 billion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, on a on a on a agricultural report day. Yeah. Each one of those commodities will trade more than 10 billion notional value in the underlying futures markets that our funds hold. So, wow. you know, an investor could say, well, I'm really big and I, I'm going to throw, you know, 10 million in your fund or 50 million at your fund. How much is it going to move? It's not going to move at all. It's not right. going to move at all. It's going to be fractional if you know enough to execute that trade during market hours of the futures that it holds. So that, that goes for any ETF. And we could have a whole show on liquidity if you want it. But um, there are people better versed than I, but people should never use a market order because everything is priced by a machine mm-hmm. and a market order is an attack order. And if there's a glitch in a machine, you're going to get a terrible fill. Always use a limit order. Always machine- use a limit. Yep. That's like rule number one. Yeah, Rule number one. And and yeah. machines, machines will just recalculate. So gotcha. if somebody comes in and says, I want to buy, you know, $5 million of your corn fund, if they do it while the corn futures are open and the corn futures are trading, you know, $5 billion that day, your $5 million doesn't mean anything. It really doesn't. And you're you're going to get a, a good fill. Yep, absolutely. Okay. A market-based fill. Right. So you've taken us back to the beginning. I mean, I love startups, right? So for me, this is cool because, you know, again, we, we kind of had, I guess, a, a front row seat in a way back when we were covering the ETF beat. It, I remember. Day. I remember those days well with you. Yeah. Um. How... Broadly speaking, with, within commodity ETFs, alternative ETFs, liquid alts, what has changed aside from everything? What has changed in the ETF landscape in those, you know, 13, 14 years? Well, I think when we came into the into the game, we we became what we call what we call second generation funds. So the first generation funds, those that hold futures like we do, they bought the front month future and rolled. And they're, you know, that's fine if you're holding for a short period of time, meaning a couple of weeks or less. But if you're if you're going to hold a long time, you now have roll costs that are that are involved with the futures. It gets complicated. So what we did was we designed funds that held more than one future. We hold we hold most of our funds hold second month, third month, and then an anchor month. So for instance, in corn, we don't hold spot month corn. First off, you don't want to because it's very limited. It turns into the physical, and that's not our job. Our job is simply to give the investor price exposure to corn. In this mm-hmm. case. And so we hold second month, third month, and then the December following third month, which means sometimes you own two Decembers. Well, guess what? Most farmers are hedging their corn in the December contract. So you're out there with the farmer, you're out there with the professionals, you're out the curve. The only people playing far out the curve are the pros. If you're going to buy a fund because you just say you want exposure to corn for whatever reason, okay, if you want to buy the corn fund, you, where do you want your money to be? You want it to be in the front, subject to the whims of everything, including, you know, speculators, headlines, all kinds of things. Or do you say, I want my portfolio to be exposed to corn for diversification purposes, maybe for some alpha purposes if I got in, you know, when corn is trading flatline, it's break even, which agriculture often does. Um, there are a lot of different reasons. You want your money to be more stable in contracts that are that are that are um not so much less volatile, but that are that are not subject just to the daily headlines. They're subject to the professionals. You trade out 12 months or 18 months, only pros are trading out that far. That's where you want your money to be with them. So that's what we designed. And so our, our funds are like second generation funds at the time. And that's where we really did uh, make an impact, not only because we provided a whole sector, meaning agriculture, that wasn't available to people before, unless you traded a futures account. Right. But we also structured them differently to have less of the inefficiencies that the first generation futures funds did. 
And I, I, I mean, I'm a, as an investor, I'm a perfect example of that because, at, you know, I never traded futures, but when commodity ETFs were available, it was sort of like, this is an easy, frankly, just easy, right? It, isn't it often about ease of use, whether you're an advisor, an individual investor, now it's easy for me to include some liquid alternatives, some commodity ETFs in my portfolio. That was my light bulb moment when I found out what an ETF was and I could yeah. put something complicated into a wrapper that made it simple for an investor. They're not necessarily simple products, but right. it makes it simple for an investor. Hey, it's in my account. I know my margin rules 50%. I'm the same rules as if I bought IBM or General Electric or, or Tesla. Yeah. You know, it's the same trading rules in my account. It's liquid. I can buy and sell it every day. I can I have price discovery during the day. It's not like a mutual fund or I put my buy or sell order in and wait for the price. It, it's it checks all these wonderful boxes and they're, you know, they're inexpensive given the products and, and what they do. Absolutely. Okay. So what I'd like to do, I have a list, not quite all, but a list of, of ETFs that I want to ask you about. And and you know, I know that um, you know, the thesis, I guess the investment thesis in commodity ETFs and agricultural ETFs. It might be kind of similar, but there's also some unique aspects of these different commodity markets, or there might be something going on in an individual commodity market that traders or investors might want to know about. So I kind of want to go through them quickly, just one by one and, okay. and get your thoughts. So why don't we start with corn, C-O-R-N, that's the ticker. This is the Tucrium Corn ETF. Uh, anything unique that investors or traders should know about corn? Sure. Um, so first off, it's a long only fund. So if you think corn's going up, the fund will will is supposed to go up and does when the futures it holds goes up, and it will go down when the futures it hold goes down. Less your fees and expenses. So you, you know that's your exposure. You need to to be okay with exposure to corn. Um, corn markets are very unique in that um, corn is king. It's it is the king of of ags, and that there's there's a reason why they made a movie called King Corn. Um, it's really important that it's it's throughout the whole economy. So, you know, we always say to people, the last thing anyone will do is let themselves, their families or their animals be cold or hungry. Mm -hmm. So, you know, why don't you have energy and food in your portfolio at, at least somewhere? And it's easy to get energy. We, we say to people, what, what commodities do you hold? Lots of people hold gold and oil. Right. And we say, okay, you can't eat gold. You need gold to get oil, you need gold to get food. And where's your food? Oh, well, you know, tell us about it. So that's where our products come in. So we give people exposure to these, these really critical products. Um, demand for uh, ags keeps going up with the population and with usage for ags. So remember, not only are more people in the world, which means more food, okay? But now we make ethanol out of corn. Corn, ethanol comes from corn and sugar. And so it, when ethanol came to be, now you need more corn for ethanol. Well, mm -hmm. corn is in... Somebody said corn is in, you know, almost 10,000 of the average 40,000 products that are in a grocery store. So wow. corn's everywhere. There's yeah. no way for you to escape. It. And it doesn't matter um, what the latest iPhone is, what the political landscape is. Um, nothing matters in, in terms of usage of corn. All right. Now, usage of wheat is even more inelastic. Because wheat is just consumed by humans. It's very rare. Well, easy. yeah. And Sal, that's on my next ticker on the list. So I want to yeah, ask so, about so wheat. We'll just, we'll just so go this in. Is... But, but let, me, let me go back. There's something yeah, called sure. the golden grain cycle. Okay. Yeah. So agriculture, because it's so important, is subsidized by every government in the world. Mm -hmm. Every farmer in the world somehow has access to a subsidy program, which means supply is encouraged, which means when the weather cooperates, there's always enough and there's actually always plenty. There's more than enough. We'll call it plenty. Grains often trade at their break-even price for long periods of time. And people can go on our website and see or Google the golden grain cycle and part of our, our things will come up, our, our publications will come up. Bottom line is every five to seven years, statistically, there's a disruption in supply, usually because of weather. So hmm. for five to seven years, and we had an eight-year period. That almost sounds biblical, Sal. Like every uh, okay, seven so years, there's a we, famine. We you know? say it all the time. <laughs> Fire, flood, famine, those are not just things that happen in the Bible. They happen yeah. to farmers and your food. And yeah. so when you see grains are flatlined, they're not really doing anything. They'll generally be at a low historical price. For corn, prior to, to the, the last two years, the, the COVID and inflation that, that came, corn's futures equivalent break-even was about $3.50 a bushel. Okay. 
flatlined there for many years. And you can look at charts, go to our website, look at the charts. But the moment there's a weather disruption, you 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 people don't stop eating their bagel in New York City if it doesn't rain no. in Kansas where they grow wheat. Okay. Right. That's the easiest way to say it. So demand is inelastic. It and and supply can be elastic. And so if supply goes down and demand stays steady, it does not take a rocket science to see what happens. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah, and I'm not math isn't my strongest suit, but I I think I can uh, I can solve that economics okay. riddle right there. So, so that's where people layer these commodities into their portfolio, and we've had yeah. many people call us and say, um, "Wow." Um, I heard you speak and I put 1% of my portfolio in corn and I had to wait three years and pay you your fees, but holy cow, it went up when it, you know, when we had a problem. And so, and that's, that Sal, that's really the whole point of alternatives. I mean, I think it, including liquid alts in a portfolio or any kind of alts, a lot of people, of course, they want to generate alpha, um, but also non-correlated assets, negative corre correlated assets, um, just that, you know, kind of downside protection or, or black swan event or, you know, all those things that you've alluded to. Sure. Well, you know, uh, Jake Hanley, our lead analyst, I mean, he always says these are products that are designed. You want products in your portfolio that zig when the stock market zags. Basically, that's what you're talking about. And yes, um, in fact, four of the last five corrections of the S&P 500, okay, with 10% or more pull back from the highs. Um, the agricultural index, either the S&P grains index or the Tucrium agricultural index, which is behind our tags fund, um, they outperform the S&P 500, sometimes very significantly. So often they all go down, you know, S&P goes down 20%, grains go down too. Okay. But far less. And people can go to our website. All this, this is there and publicly available, but it's really important to understand that grains We've had many days when the S and P is down, and our funds are the only green on the screen. And you know, it's it's just nice to see. That's awesome. Well, okay. On that note, I want to move on to the next ETF here. So this one is wheat, W E A T, the Tucrium wheat ETF. Are it, you know, you already mentioned that the demand for wheat is very inelastic. Uh, I mean, my wife and I, we make homemade bread three times a week. So I guess I'm, I'm part of the problem. Has the whole anti-gluten movement, you know, has that really put a dent in this ETF? You, you know, people ask us about that. They ask us about anti-gluten. They ask <laughs> us about sugar-free and all that. These markets are so gigantic, yeah. okay? And you've got to think globally where our first world high class, I'm worried about my gluten intake yeah. and I want to go sugar-free that's really important to us. Okay. There are 8 billion people on the world and most of them could not give a hoot about those things. They yeah, just and, 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 and whatever percent of them lar much larger than we'd like are dealing with food insecurity. And that's a matter of a Correct. lot of times basic nutrition, Correct. basic grain. So, so it, between like corn and wheat, I guess, even these, these first two are these mostly, um, I guess, do you have data is this investors? Is this traders? Is this both? Who who's owning these ETFs? Well, here's traders? the interesting part about ETFs. We don't. We're not a mutual fund, so we have no idea who's buying us. We 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 sell the shares. Actually, we don't make markets in the shares. Market makers do. Okay, mm -hmm. they're and authorized participants are people that we have a contractual relationship with. And this is for all ETFs. This is how the ETF right. business works. Okay. Um, they so market makers buy and sell on the on the stock exchange depending on investor demand. Okay. And if they sold a great number of shares, they're exempt from the short selling rule. So they can sell, they can, they don't, they can sell short and not be covered. Okay. Mm -hmm. They can sell short and be exposed for, I think it's five days um, without having to do anything about it. So what they do on the, on the market, when a lot of demand comes in for one of our funds or any other ETF, they sell those shares. And when they're short enough of them, they come to us and do what's called the create. And we do creation baskets, which vary between 12,500 shares and 25,000 shares of basket and an authorized purchaser will do that. Vice versa, we do with, with um, we can take those baskets back, take the shares back off the market. So that's, that's the ETF mechanism. That's why it works so well. That's why it doesn't matter what the volume of an ETF is. It can be zero, 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 and you want to buy a million shares, buy them, do it when the underlying market's open, you get your million shares at a, at a good price. That's, so it has, the, the ETF market has that kind of built in, um, safety valve or multiple layers of liquidity, Correct. better way Correct. to put a it. A lot of people check in the old fashioned boxes 
thinking yeah. about mutual funds or stocks. Those are irrelevant when it comes to ETFs. What's relevant to an ETF is what does it hold? Where is that market traded? And the market maker who's making markets in the ETF trades those underlying markets and creates the shares that you need instantly. Machines do it. It's really fast. It happens seamlessly and it happens efficiently in deep markets. And that's why we chose these markets. I, I didn't want to be in illiquid markets. Understood. Okay. What about Soybe? S-O-Y-B, the Tucrium Soybean ETF. Anything unique going on in the soybean market that investors should be aware of right now? Sure. Soybeans are the the, the unwanted stepchild. So they, they share acres with corn. They're really important. Um, and nobody talks about them. And, you know, corn, when we first launched, going back to your original question, it took two years and our second year of corn being launched, there was a, there was a drought and we, a lot of money came into corn and that made our corn fund. Um, in 2014, Russia invaded Crimea and our wheat fund, which had sat at $3 million for three and a half years, literally doing nothing went to almost $50 million in the course of a few months because wheat was in the headlines. And when Russia invaded uh, Ukraine in February, mm -hmm. um, our wheat fund, I think, went from $80 million to to well over half a billion in a matter of weeks. Wow. Uh, it, it, you, headlines matter. And soybeans yeah. are never in the headlines. They were during the trade war when Donald yeah. Trump uh, it was, was having a dispute with China. So when, when President Trump put in uh, the tariffs, we had some interest and that grew our soybean fund. But soybeans are, the fund is never as active or never as big as I think it should be. It's still a nice fund, a good fund. Um, yeah. Bloomberg reporters do do a great job in saying that it's one of the better futures ETFs out there in terms of whatever metrics they look at. That okay. just happens to be the way it worked out. It's nothing that we've done other than the original design. That's just the way soybeans trade. Understood. Okay. Well, that brings me to cane. And this is one of my favorite tickers. This is the Tucrium sugar ETF. I mean, well, I got to say you have the data. So let me theorize. I would theorize that this is another area of relatively inelastic demand, right? Um, that's true. And sugar, you know, people are always asking, what about sugar free? Well, remember, um, sugar is kind of like corn. Sugar has two uses. It, it gets fed to humans. Humans consume it in a variety of ways, directly and indirectly, and it, it makes ethanol. And in fact, it's the most efficient way to make ethanol. In corn, there was the whole food for fuel debate when corn was first used for ethanol. And you'll notice that went away quickly, if you remember. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is the only thing you need from the corn to make ethanol is the starch. So you pull the starch out of the corn because you're going to turn that into a sugar and then turn that into ethanol. So it's an extra step. Okay. But what's left is the fiber, the protein, and the oil. So it's still an animal feed. It's still useful for all kinds of other byproducts that get consumed directly or indirectly by animals and humans. So more corn being planted for ethanol actually increased the food supply. There was no food for fuel debate there. Um, in With sugar, it, there's just enough sugar to, to produce both and it's a simpler process. So yeah, the, the demand stays stays pretty firm there. And it's, it's kind of a backwards market, whereas the uh, corn, soybean and wheat ETFs focus on front month, second month futures, and then either a November or December future. Um, sugar focuses on March as it's okay. because it's basically grown in, in Brazil, India and Indonesia. So it's it's kind of a reverse reverse market there. Okay. So, so we've covered these individual commodity ETFs. Now there's a couple more that might be a little more interesting to some investors. Um, next on my list, I have TAGS, T-A-G-S. This is the Tucrium Agricultural ETF. So what's unique about this ETF? Why might this ETF be appealing for an investor to include in their portfolio? The most common question we get from investors is, wow, you've convinced me I do need an exposure to ags in my portfolio mm -hmm. um, for, for whatever reason that they come up with, diversification or, or, or alts or just alpha. But which one do I pick? Right. And a lot of people, they just want the exposure. So TAGS actually is a fund of funds. It buys 25% equal weighting of, our, of the four funds we've just spoken about. Okay, mm -hmm. so it buys 25% of our corn fund, our soybean fund, our wheat fund, and our sugar fund. It's the old DBA. In essence, it's the DBA that you may remember when you first started in the business that was just 25% of the big four. And so that's what TAGS does. Then there's TIL. I'll hit, I don't know if you mentioned it or not, but that's probably next. Well, that, yeah, I was getting to that one next. Let me ask about TIL because I got to say that this is the Tucrium Agricultural Strategy No K1 ETF. And we were talking about catchy tickers. This has to be like the catchiest ETF name I've ever heard. Just having 
like no K one in the ETF name. That's like a power phrase. I'm like, Oh, that just caught my attention right away. I'm like, I got to ask Sal about this one. Yeah. Here's, here's the issue. So it are the first five funds we've spoken about yeah. all our 33 act funds. They issue a K one. So for, for P- what happens is a lot of people check the no K one box in their TAMP program. So they're, they're, you know, their asset management program where they're, where they're, there's just money going in weekly into into an investment. Um, a lot of people don't want a K one. And if and, I'm a if I'm a, a, a W two employee and I'm not an entrepreneur and I'm not high net worth, I'm not a family office, I'm not invested in private equity stuff. I have to say, I you know I wouldn't want a K one. It's just okay. kind of like once you get ten already. What do I care if I get the eleventh or twelfth? But if I got zero, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want the first. I think. Okay, so yeah. that's a valid point, kind of. Okay. So, so the one is okay. That's valid. You don't want a K one. Yeah. You don't want a K one. But an, a K one from an ETF is completely different than you know your father's clay K one from his dry cleaning business. Fair. That's right? fair. Yeah. That that comes in September and is an inch thick. Okay, and he's got to yeah. file a delay in his taxes. <laughs> the 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 K ones that are itch, that that ETFs they're all issued by the same company. Price Waterhouse Coopers has a lock on it. They're the yeah. only people that do it. They're issued by Valentine's Day. If you actually printed it out and don't, okay, okay. they're about as big as a postcard and they have two or three pieces of information on. And there's a giant 800 number on the bottom. If you have a question, you call the 800 number and they walk you through. It's not a problem really to get a K-1 from an ETF. It's completely different than getting a K-1 from a business. But company. but I guess it caught my attention anyway, right? Having in the, It caught my attention. Okay, and I'm but, even a, but a I'm lot okay. of people don't even want to deal with that. If you're doing yeah. your, your tax returns on TurboTax, you, you got to spend a couple extra minutes on the K-1. It may not be multiple pages and a problem. It may just be a little item that you enter in, but it's an extra step. People yeah. don't want that for whatever reason. We had investor demand, as you can see, yeah, Hill leapfrogged over tags in terms of popularity, in terms of the amount of AUM in it, because investors just need that. So it's sl- also slightly different. It's not a fund of funds like tags. It still only owns 25% each of corn, soybeans, wheat, and sugar, but it just owns a single futures contract from each one of those. And we choose. So it's an actively managed fund, which some people want. Um, we choose which contract that will be based on when the roll roll period comes, what what our parameters are. But you're, you're still long 25% corn, soybeans, wheat, and sugar, but long in a different way, slightly different way, because you're long directly the futures rather than being long our other our other funds. All right. So I got I have two questions related to, to uh, till and to tags. My first question is why equal weight the four commodities versus uh, like market cap weighting? Um, because market, market cap's a little different when it comes to ags and ags are, uh, ags are supply and demand and they can be out of whack. And, Mm. you know, the market cap of corn may be multiples larger than sugar or, or wheat, but that doesn't mean, you know, corn is going to perform differently just because of the market cap. These things are completely and totally supply and demand related. And if you notice in our lifetimes, thankfully, there has not been a global famine where people starve to death because there wasn't enough. People starve to death because they are denied food for political reasons. Yeah, it's a distribution issue a lot of times. And so if you look at it, there are two conditions in ags that we say exist. One is enough. And that's when you see prices go up because there's enough. Okay. But that's a little uncomfortable. Then there's plenty. There's more than enough. And so, you know, for instance, in the United States, we're very accustomed to having. um, So let's go back on grains for a minute. Grains are unique in that they grow once a year. All right. So you plant the seed in the ground in the spring. You wait for it to grow. You cultivate it. It ripens in the summer. It gets harvestable in the fall. You've harvested in late fall. It's in a big pile. Okay, so just just take corn. It's a big pile of corn. All right, everybody in the world taking out of that pile all winter long, all spring long because you're planting the next seed, but it's not harvestable. All summer long because it's growing, but it's not harvestable. All autumn long because it's drying, getting ready to harvest. So you have to go a full year with what you grew in that in that year, and that pile keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So in the United States, we're accustomed to having a six to eight week pile of corn left over at the end. Okay. A cushion. When that pile goes down to four weeks. Okay. People get really nervous 
They get really nervous. What if something happens to this year's crop? That's okay. why there's always been enough. Thank, thank God there's always been enough. Okay. Yep. But when there's just enough, prices are really high. Generally, yeah. yeah. When there's plenty, prices are flatlined. And so there's, there's that golden grain cycle. When there's plenty, that's when people should think about layering grains into their portfolio because it's a value play at that point you're getting you're getting cheap exposure with with upside you're yeah downside yeah Correct. and you know one one thing that, that that brings to mind when you said that there's always enough you know with with some of these with food and you know how they calculate inflation it, there's a lot of subjects here but with the substitution effect or, or you know am i am i having that technical term right but if there's a slight shortage of one commodity but there's another commodity that could satisfy consumer preferences. You know, if the, if the price of chicken spikes, I might eat beef more often or vice versa. So. Correct. And a, a chicken farmer, if the price of corn spikes, might feed his chickens more soybeans or wheat. Right. Okay. And in fact, there's a protein trade, wheat versus corn. It's just a matter of protein of what you want to feed your cattle. So re right? real quick, real quick, Sal, my other, it was about to come off my radar. My other question between tax and till, though, you kind of mentioned that some investors are wary of the K-1, so they like mm -hmm. till, and that these two ETPs are ETFs are structured differently. Which one is ultimately, is there one that's ultimately more cost efficient than the other? Like if I don't care about the K-1 one way or the other, and I just want the most efficient exposure to the that diversified basket of these agricultural commodities, is there one that's slightly more efficient than the other or are they? I, roughly... That's hard to say because while, okay. So remember tags, it looks like the tags not only has its own fees of, I think 13 bips at the moment, but go by whatever's in the prospectus. Okay. It yeah. also, because it owns the other funds, it's paying those expenses too. Right. Fund so if you fund. add that up and I don't, I don't know the math. We can look at the prospectuses, but if you add that up, that's probably more expensive in fees than till. Mm -hmm. Okay. But Till only owns one futures contract in each, whereas Tags owns what we think are the most efficiently designed. Uh, okay, so it's, so it's an impossible question to answer ultimately. Pretty much. Just, they're just structurally a little pretty bit different. Go design. by whatever your tax preference is. If you Got know, it. that's because because K1s are taxed differently. Commodities are taxed with a 60-40, which is okay. advantageous to a lot of people. So, right. you know, that's ultimately probably going to be your decision. Okay. Well, the last ETF I want to talk about today. Uh, this one is OAIA, the Tucrium AILA Long Short Agriculture Strategy ETF. So this one is very unique. It's a little bit different than the other Tucrium funds. Tell us about this fund. What's the strategy behind it? We believe this fund is unique, that there's no other ETF like it, that it's actually creating a category in and of itself. Wow. We have we have, we follow the ILA indexes, so the AILA. Okay. Um, that's ILA. That is a firm based out of Singapore. And they have a um, machine learning system that watches thousands of data points in commodities and creates trades on a daily basis, creates trades on a daily basis, and it learns as it goes. So in other words, if it analyzes, and I'm just making this up, okay, but if it analyzes 2,000 different factors of the soybean market right now, and says it needs to be long soybeans. It needs to be long soybeans based upon what the soybean market has done when those 2,000 data points it's analyzes are lining up exactly as they are now, okay? Mm -hmm. It looks back in history and sees what the soybean market did and will make a trade based on that, long, short, or flat, okay? And if I had- So this is a machine learning algorithm making the trade without any human intervention? That is correct. This is this is basically uh, it's a multi-factor regression analysis is what it is. Understood. That is in a machine. If I had two thousand of the world's best traders looking only at soybeans, okay, or whatever commodity is trading, but this, so this one trades ags, it's trading agriculture, and let's just, I'm just picking on soybeans. And they were all looking at each one was just assigned to its particular data point. So I have 2000 traders, each one looking at a specific data point and what it makes soybean markets do. They still couldn't agree on a trade and do it fast enough. <laughs> Only a machine can do this. Sure. Okay. And it learns as it goes. And here's what's unique. There is a, you're hearing a lot about AI. You're hearing a lot about machine learning. There are a lot of people out there right now saying that we can trade commodities or any other market using a machine and it can do it faster and better than a human. And all of that's true. But what they don't have that the island indexes have is a six-year published track history. And you can find it on Bloomberg. Okay. So we are actually a passive fund. 
while while that strategy is you know basically anything but passive that's an index that has a track history all we do is track the index so it's a passive 40 act fund so it checks every box you you know if people don't want k1 fine you're not getting k1 yeah if you if you want passive versus active there it is it's easy but it's following an index using a a machine learning system that 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 has um a, a track history like a significant track history and so 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 could it could i almost think of this like uh it's almost like a hedge fund replication type of strategy. That's what it is. You can only get access to this in a private bank product or a hedge fund. And so what, what we provide is a liquid alternative with reasonable ETF fees, we we believe, okay, mm-hmm. that, that has a track history. It has a track history. So this is... <laughs> This is like going into an experienced hedge fund manager and, and past performance is not indicative of futures results that I'm not just saying that. Okay. They make us say that, but that's a real thing. It's true. Yeah, it's true. Not get, Especially in the hedge you know, fund world. I think correct. that's true. Yeah. It, it, but if you have a hedge fund manager who's got a six year track history, that's, that's yeah. good. Okay. And people can go look at the index. It's on yeah. our, on the website. Um, or we, we point you to it. Um, you know, there's no guarantee that that's going to be replicated, but you might, take a shot with that hedge fund manager. This is a machine that learns as it goes, that's got a six-year track history. And your risk with us is, number one, that that machine will stop. Its six-year track history won't won't continue on, okay, as effectively. That's primary, your first risk. Your second risk is that we won't track the index. Well, we're futures traders. That's what we do. So we we get the signals. We we see what the index is doing, and we just mimic it. That's all we do. So the the best we can mimic it with slippage and fees, that's what you're going to get. Um, and and it will. But, do- but and I don't even know what the expense ratio is. It's one point four nine percent. In it compared to and and I already talked about this in another episode in the series that we're doing on liquid alts. But ETFs that are hedge fund, you know, replication ETFs are kind of adjacent to that hedge fund space. I remember a decade ago, investors, some of these products started coming out and investors were like comparing them to a Vanguard fund that tracks the S&P 500 mm-hmm. saying, well, these expense ratios are way too high. You know, I'm used to five basis points, 10 basis points, 20 basis points products. But when you compare the fees with these alternative ETFs to if, if you're looking at them as a replacement to an actual illiquid hedge fund then those expense ratios are way, way less expensive than the fees, expenses that you pay. Okay, that, actual hedge fund. that's correct. So a lot of times the press will say, well, this is an expensive ETF. Well, really, is it an S&P 500 ETF that should only be four bips or nine bips or whatever it is, wherever the market right. is? No, this is literally a, a hedge fund strategy. This is an active, long, short futures trading strategy that you can only access through an offshore hedge fund or an offshore bank product. There's no other way for investors to get access to this. We spotted that. We licensed these products and we're, we're, we're putting them in the ETF wrapper. We we think this is literally the future of ETF. This is- And do you have an exclusive license like on these indexes? Okay, so you have an exclusive license. So nobody can come in and well, try and re- replicate. For an ETF, no other ETF come in. There are banks using them. There are foreign banks using them. There, there will be hedge funds using them, okay? But- yeah. If you want to pay two and twenty, or or pay a you know bank fees that behind the ETN product are pretty substantial. I've been there, I know. Um, and you want an illiquid, non-transparent, you know, limited partnership? Well, go ahead. Okay, we we just package this that anybody can buy, an institution or an individual. And guess what? Regular people can get access to this strategy that right now only institutions and very wealthy individuals can get access to. So and, we and just kind of really, democratize this thing. That's really, and and by the way, I have to say, I'm personally, I'm not anti-hedge fund. I'm not anti-illiquid products. And I'm also not, I'm not against active management. And, you know, active management, regardless of what space we're talking about, it takes smart people, smart men and women who are experienced and it's very time intensive and labor intensive. So I'm not against active management. I'm not against uh, hedge funds. Definitely not against private illiquid alts. Uh, I'm an investor in private illiquid alts. I'm I'm just pointing out that in the ETF world, people have this tendency to kind of put them all in this single, you know, their ETFs in the ETF bucket. 
but it's really important to look at the underlying assets and and think about well it's not just an ETF what's it, what are the underlying assets what are the underlying strategies because sometimes the peer group or or the the uh, comparative product that the advisor or investor should be looking at might actually be inside a different wrapper um, and, and sometimes they you know really ultimately they don't end up being apples to apples, right? Like ultimately, I don't know that I can compare uh, totally apples to apples, an illiquid hedge fund with institutional investors and you know ultra high net worth family office type investors with an ETF, but it's a really unique fund that you all have launched. And, and as you said, it's a strategy that, that you brought to market that would otherwise not be available to, the ET, uh, to, to a retail investor, to a non- accredited investor. That's correct. And beyond that, accredited investors and even institutions are going to look at this and say, wait a minute, I have liquidity here. I can get in and out of this thing whenever I want. So, mm-hmm. you know, this this is a suitable product for from the the you know the smallest retail investor to an institution who only has private private uh placement products, which I'm not against as well. But you know, when we look at it with our ETF hat on, how do we help the investor? What product do we give to the investor? We truly think this is the future where you have machine-driven trading. This happens to have a track history, which is a rare thing to find. Um, you probably could compare these. The most comparable thing are to managed futures ETFs. So there are a handful of them out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't, I, we don't see any other products like this that are out there. Really exciting stuff. And by the way, for our listeners and viewers, I'm going to be sure to link to all of these different two cream funds in our show notes page. Um, so, you know, if you want any more information, just go to altstv.com slash podcast uh, to check our show notes and I'll link to all of them there. Um, that being said, Sal, I can't thank you enough, uh, you know, for, for giving us, you know, just the backstory of two cream. You all have done so much in the ETF space and you're still doing, you know, like wait, you know, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, however many years ago, launching innovative products, you're still doing that. Um, God bless you and and your entrepreneurship because, you know, that's the most exciting part of this space is just seeing new products launch that ultimately do improve outcomes and choices for investors. And that being said, where can our audience go to learn more about Tucrium? and your family of funds? Uh, Tucrium.com is probably the best place. We also have a Twitter handle, at uh, Tucrium ETFs, um, where you can find find things going across. But Tucrium.com, it's, it's a wealth of information and, and you can contact us directly. We're here to, here to help. Sal, thanks again for coming on the show today. Thank you, Andy, appreciate it. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 